Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. And welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I think you're interesting. And today we're going to rebuild civilization. Uh, things have been, you know, they've taken a turn. So we, we need to start thinking about what it's going to mean to make things better by completely rebuilding our civilization. We're going to start with the author of a new book I really enjoyed called How to Invent Everything. Basically, the premise is you are a time traveler who's been stranded somewhere in the Paleolithic, I think is the term, somewhere when there are like, you know, early humans, but they don't have language, they don't have agriculture, they don't have all the stuff that eventually made us human so we could break our civilization. And the idea is that you are going to invent civilization from scratch. And how would you go about doing that? And how could you do it as quickly and efficiently as possible? And it contains all these fun facts. It was one of those books that I kept like waking up my wife to read little things to her. And then she'd say, that sounds great. And then she'd go back to sleep. So I think you'll really enjoy it. But also Ryan is someone who has for many years written one of my favorite things on the internet, Dinosaur Comics. He's also the author of Marvel's Squirrel Girl comics, the Adventure Time comics. He's written other books. He's done so many great things. He's, he's one of my favorites, and he's such a fun and funny guy, and, and we were so lucky to have him on the show. And then after we're done talking to Ryan, we're going to have a brief conversation with the people who will help us uh, go to a new world to build a new civilization. May Jemison and Leland Melvin, they're former NASA astronauts. They are part of the Nat Geo series Mars, which is returning shortly for a new season. However, we are going to talk about, you know, what it means to go up into space, sort of that emotional experience, and, you know, maybe if we'll get to Mars before we completely destroy everything else. So I think you're going to like this episode. I think it's going to inspire you to rebuild civilization and make it better. God, I hope so. Stick around. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want you to just kind of take me through what the book is, you know, sort, sort of briefly. Obviously, we don't want you to spoil all of its many surprises. <laughs> uh, but, but what you know, like just that title, it sounds like I know what this book is going to be. But I was pleasantly surprised by like how much other stuff was in there. So kind of give me a sense of what the book is. Sure. So the, the premise of the book is that it's a book that I found encased in solid rock, which generally is impossible. And it turns out this is a book that is a repair guide for a time machine from the future, from around 2043. Mm. And, uh, the book begins saying, hey, you know, congratulations on renting this time machine. Temporal tourism is a thing we do all the time here in the future. You're definitely going to be fine. But in the off chance that your time machine breaks down, uh, here's a repair guide for your time machine. <laughs> like a, like rental cars are always not the greatest cars, at least at the price point I get them at. Yeah. I feel like time machines would probably be the same way. Yeah. And then uh, the next page of the book says, oh, you know, <laughs> should have told you this sooner, but uh, time machines are the most complicated machines humans have ever made, and there's no user serviceable parts inside. You're not going to fix this time machine. You're stuck where you are. <laughs> However, uh, you can't go back to the future, but we can tell you how to bring the future back to you by teaching you how to invent everything. And then you sort of get into the 
the non-fictional parts of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm actually like, I'm fascinated by how the book is structured because it really is like a how-to manual for how to build civilization, like like an Ikea, Ikea instructions for saying. <laughs> and um, just like, tell me about like how you sort of came up with what that looked like structurally. Because um, actually, you know what? Take me through your first steps because I think like these are the first things you need to have to build civilizations. Like I, you know, I hadn't quite thought of it that way despite playing many hours of the game Civilization. <laughs> I too have spent many hours in research, let's call it, playing <laughs> Civ. Uh, well, the, the argument I make is that the five fundamental technologies you need to build any civilization are in one sense, very easy because you've already got them in your head and they're, they're information-based. You don't need to actually invent something physical for them. And those, those technologies are uh, spoken and written language. And those, those are technologies. Like We tend to think of them as something we get for free because we don't remember having to learn language. But we were all babies and babies are incredible where they can invent the idea of language and then instantiate it just by watching other people talk <laughs> when they're three years old. It's amazing. So written and spoken language, uh, non-sucky numbers, so a number system that lets you work easily with numerals. And then uh, the scientific methods, so you can create information that is reproducible and testable. And finally, uh, calorie surplus, so farming, having more food than you personally need to eat, which means uh, if you're not worrying where your next meal is coming from, you can start worrying about why do the stars seem to move in the sky or why do apples fall from trees and stuff like that. So that's the that's the basis for it. Yeah, tell me tell me sort of a little bit about like then how you structured the book in terms of okay this follows from this this follows from this I I was surprised at how like there would be connections between stuff that would reach back several chapters you know yeah it was um, an organic process where uh, the first thing I did was just tons of research and um, there's this Batman panel I kept thinking about <laughs> I think of comics <laughs> of a lot. Yeah. There's this Batman panel from uh, year one where he's not yet Batman. He's just Bruce Wayne. He's been training. And the dialogue and, or the, the narration that scene is talking about how he has the, the tools and he has the means, but he's not ready. He's not ready. And the pictures show him like karate kicking a tree in half and he's clearly ready. <laughs> <laughs> but Batman just needed the bat costume. I just needed to uh, sit down and actually start writing. And so I started with the fictional part of it, the time travel uh, wrapper around the book to give me the rules of how time travel works and how this book would work. And then it was just, well, what what do you need to invent civilization? And is this book actually possible? <laughs> because yeah. the idea of collapsing civilization into 468 pages, I wasn't certain you could do that and produce both a book that would be entertaining for people who aren't stuck in the past to read, but also a legitimate and sincere effort to solve these problems. You do happen to be stranded at any point in history. I wanted this to be an actual book to do that because it was something I've and I'm guessing you too I feel like a lot of us have worried about what we do if we were stuck in time I feel like this is universal <laughs> I'm hoping it's universal but it's pretty common I find yeah yeah I uh I, I have thought about that, I have to admit. Um, I like the way that the book has this sort of weird fictional, like you said, wrapper. Like you do, you have clearly thought about the world of the 2040s. Like there's a periodic table of elements included in the book that includes several elements that have not actually been discovered. Like yeah. there are these little jokes and hints about what the world is like. And then there are like jokes and hints about who the author of this book is, the other Ryan North from the future. Um, tell me a little bit about like developing that and did you want to include more and had to pull back or did you sort of, how did you find that balance? Yeah, I was worried. My main concern starting this book was that it would be boring because I had this idea like, what if farming is boring? And then I have a boring book with a boring section on farming. And I would, 
I was happy because farming is actually really interesting. <laughs> I had no idea. I was fascinated by it. But also uh, the structure of the book let me, you know, if I thought things were getting slow or getting too heavy, I could throw in a time travel joke or do something about the, the sort of fictional wrapper around it. It's funny you mentioned the periodic table because that goes all the way up to element 172. And the reason it stops there is that according to our best knowledge, at that point, the atom would be so big, the electrons would be moving faster than light, <laughs> element 173. So that's probably a limit of how many elements there are. I like the idea of a future world where time travel is routine, like you, you rent it like a vacation, because it seemed to me that once you invent, like once you invent a time machine, that's it. Like all your problems are over because any problem you have, you just go to the future, see how they solved it and bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it felt like it would be a utopia, but it's kind of an absurd utopia. The, the structure of time travel in this book is that every time you go back in time, you don't have to worry about stepping on butterflies or creating paradoxes because you always create a new timeline, a new universe that is exactly the same except now you're in it. And that let me set up, uh, you know, renting out time machines to members of the general public without making it wildly irresponsible. But I realized as I was writing it, like, this is pretty ethically fraught. <laughs> We're creating yeah. effectively holodecks, but they're filled with real people. And that gave it sort of a kind of a dark humor that I really enjoyed, the idea that this is tourism, but, you know, just don't look to the left where you realize all these horrible things we're doing for the purposes of literal tourism, and yeah. it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of one of the things I thought about when I was reading it was, um, you know, it's obviously cheeky. I don't think that if either of us travels back to, you know, prehistory, we're going to be able to invent civilization in a month, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, it takes some time. I think, yeah, spoken language is going to take, you know, a, a week or so. It's, it's going to take <laughs> a little longer than, than, than you'd think. But one of the things I was thinking about is like how human beings cope with rapid change, which is to say not well. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was wondering if you thought about like sort of thinking about like that, psychological impact have you thought about like including some information on like the human brain or something in the book or, you know I, I realize that's a huge topic to try to distill into like 20 pages but you know what I mean yeah there was a lot of stuff that um I had no time to include at the beginning end up not including uh I was surprised how much I could include um there I've been calling them the low-hanging fruits of civilization where it's something that you can understand and can invent all on your own without needing a civilization there to support you. And we go all the way up to computers, to computational machinery, which I was really happy to get that far. But there were all sorts of things that um, I couldn't put in. Uh, one that came to mind was uh, there's an appendix at the back for creating chemicals, many of which are extremely dangerous. <laughs> you don't want to <laughs> yeah. make them willy-nilly. And among them is chlorine. And I thought, well, if we have chlorine gas, uh, we can, we can, you know, we have chlorine, we can make chlorinated water. And it turns out the range of chlorine in water in which it makes it safe to drink without making it poison water is pretty small. <laughs> I didn't want uh, to didn't want to have time travelers or uh, just regular people accidentally making chlorine <laughs> water. <laughs> sure. So I didn't put that in. Uh, but in terms of like the question of if we were actually in the past, uh, could this work? Could we use it? I think the most practical way, which may not be the most ethical way, but the most practical way for success is uh, if you're trapped in, say, 150,000 BCE cave cave people era, um, babies learn language much faster than humans do, yeah. <laughs> or much faster than adults do. And so if you uh, fell in with some cave-dwelling humans with babies and befriended the babies and sort of chatted with them, I feel like you that's the fast track to sidestepping the problem of having to adapt to change, because for them it's normal. This is just what the world looks like. And... Uh, you also get them speaking much faster. So 
I, in an event last night, I said, kidnap babies. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't tell people to kidnap <laughs> cave babies. So now just befriend babies is what I'll say. <laughs> that is now the official motto of this podcast. Don't kidnap cave babies. <laughs> uh, Don't kidnap cave babies. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of want to like, I, I want to ask about the importance of staying. And I'm going to pull in a wrestling term here. The importance of staying cave uh, fabe. Basically, the book is written as though you found it in Iraq and uh, you, it is written by a different Ryan North from another timeline uh, and all of this other stuff who shares many similarities with you but may not actually be you. And like you maintain that through the whole book and I'm wondering what it was that made you want to – made you want to sort of play around in that sort of like this is real quote unquote. Yeah. The major structural reason was I thought it was really important. There's not a lot of books that – blend fiction and nonfiction in this way. And I wanted to make it clear to readers what the fictional part was and what the nonfictional part was. And so I thought, well, let's keep all the fictional stuff taking place in the future where there's time travel, which would be really clear that's not real, hopefully. And the nonfiction stuff will be, be more clear. And so that's sort of, by keeping that that thing, how do you pronounce the word? Confebe? I've seen it okay, written out ca- loud. Ca- I, I just looked up the pronunciation. I've been calling it kefabe my whole life, and it's actually kefabe. So kefabe. there you go. <laughs> That's great. We both learned more about wrestling. Uh, so to keep it kayfabe like that was yeah. um, to keep the book clear in my head. And also it, it sort of gave me a little bit of forward narrative momentum because you're always wondering like, what is the future like? What do these people know? What is going on with this other Ryan? Why Why did this book end up encased in solid stone? And actually the first draft of the book had an answer to that question. I ended up taking that chapter out because I felt like the question is more interesting than than the answer. I'm going to tell you way too much about my life, which is I, I once please I once tried to write a thing where it was it was fiction. It was set in like it was set in like the Daily Planet. So it was a newspaper that covered a world with superheroes, and every part like everybody I sort of talked to about it was like you can't just do newspaper stories because the superheroes are going to take over. You know that's all people are going to care about. <laughs> They're not going to care about like somebody covering the city council meeting. And um, I guess that what I'm wondering is like, did you feel that temptation of I wanting to work in more and more fantastical? Stuff? Stuff, or, or were you sort of able to keep it at the edges pretty easily? Yeah, this is going to sound like, a, I don't know, a rehearsed answer, but <laughs> it's real. Like, I feel like the the actual the actual history, the real science was really interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, learning this, discovering this, writing a book about it, I really love that part. And I, I my hope is that it will be interesting to other people too. And the I don't think, I hope when you read the book, you won't think, man, I wish I knew more what was going on in 2043 CE because I give you enough. I feel like to say like time machines get invented. There's a company. It's kind of not the greatest company, but they have a monopoly on time travel. There's tourism, but it's sort of uh, a structure to get us to the the cool stuff in the book. Yeah. Um, I mean, the problem, I think the challenge, one of the reasons I avoided doing too much about the future is that, like I say, once you have time travel, and you're going to the future, it should be a utopia. Like, you should have all your problems solved. And I'm not sure there's that many interesting stories to tell about a future in which, you know, it's post-scarcity, everything's great, no conflict, everything's done. If we get in trouble, we'll just ask the time machine what we should do and then do it and everything will be fine. So <laughs> saying it now loud, I'm like, that does sound really interesting, actually, but maybe that's a different book. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that I, I, That's one of the things I liked about it was sort of how you, there was the implication of like, oh, maybe these time machines fail more often than they say they do, but you like leave it in yeah. footnotes. And I found that sort of a, a fascinating approach to it. Yeah. One of the um, structural things that came out of that that fictional story was that we have footnotes that are within the books, so that's the future Ryan North doing it. 
And there's endnotes written by me, the guy who found the book. Mm-hmm. The one problem with this, this structure, this idea, is that in the future, there should be no unanswered questions, right? Like things should be solved. And so writing a book from the point of view of a future in which all knowledge has been achieved, we don't live in that time period. And sometimes I had to make an assumption or go with a best guess that hasn't fully been proven yet. And I didn't want to have that people people thinking that's real when it's not fully proved all the way real. And so there's end notes that say, you know, this seems credible, but here's something that maybe you want to put the brakes on that a little bit. So again, keeping the fiction and the nonfiction separate. This may be me reading my own, you know, reading my own country situation into things. But <laughs> there was, a, you know, kind of, there felt to me like sort of an element of, almost longing, like if we could go back and just do civilization right this time. You oh, know? just fix things. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, there's so many points in the book where you're like, well, they could have invented this 4,000 years earlier, but we just, mm-hmm. you know, humanity just didn't. Or, you know, there's sort of a very succinct explanation of why you don't want to use all the coal and oil you find lay in the ground, like to, to power <laughs> stuff because it's pumping a bunch of carbon back into the atmosphere. And like, there's all this stuff that's like, well, if we just knew that then now, you know, we'd be fine. And I'm like, I'm wondering if you sort of felt that impulse of of a lot of time travel stories have that element of, oh, we should just go back to a simpler time. And like you're essentially advocating for going back to, you know, even before that, you know, I wonder if you (laughs) felt that. Yeah, it's not so much. I didn't feel like if only we could go back when things were simpler. It's more the yearning that if only we could go back and do it right. Yeah. If only we could go back and, and fix it. And the book ends on a very optimistic note where it says like, you now have all the knowledge we have now, but you're in the past. Like you have the gift of foresight that we never had and you can do everything we did, but you can do it better. You can fix it. Mm-hmm. And that I feel is the core of the time travel fantasy. Both, I think it's, we can make it better, but more importantly, I can make it better. Like if I knew what I knew now back then, I could change everything. And that's a really empowering and fun, fun fantasy to think about. And I feel like that's sort of, that's the joy of even thinking about time travel is that idea of fixing things and being that person who can do it. I guess it's a superhero power fantasy, but for time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna say if you were like if you were like somebody who like you got one round trip to the past where you could like spend a, like a day back there and like you could change one thing. Like, what's one like one thing you wish oh, humanity had known sooner? You know, uh, it would take more than a day. But well, yeah, obviously, there's, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, but there's this, there's this huge. I mentioned in the book. There's this huge gap of time between around 200,000 BCE, which is when uh, anatomically modern humans show up. So those are people who look like us. And 50,000 BCE, when behaviorally modern humans appear, this is humans that behave like us. They, they bury their dead. They create art, things like that. And there's this huge gap of time between them. And the question is, well, what brought us from anatomically modern to behaviorally modern? And when the theory says, oh, well, we, um, we invented language. We started talking to each other. We realized that other people have the same inner lives that we do. And when you have language, you have ideas that survive outside the death of the host, outside of you. And that's a, that's a huge leap forward. And so I feel like, if I had the chance, uh, this is where you could have the single greatest impact on history. You go back to 200,000 BCE and teach them how to talk, and you're giving every civilization on the planet a 150,000-year head start, which is huge. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that means you either go back to the present and it's a burnt cinder and you rolled the dice and you lost, <laughs> or you go back and it's, you know, hover cars and jetpacks and everything's great forever. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot about how like the Romans were had essentially everything to make the steam engine and then they didn't and then the Roman Empire collapsed and like, you know, where would we be if they had done that? And like the the book is sort of full of these like weird fascinating dead ends. What what was something that like you were surprised to learn 
that we either had much sooner and forgot about or like we could have had much sooner and we just didn't figure it out. Yeah, the one that that stuck with me is the mention of the stethoscope. Mm -hmm. And so that gets invented in 1816 CE by this uh, Victorian doctor, heterosexual man with this uh, busty female patient. And he wants to listen to her heart. And he's like, well, I can't put my ear to her chest because that's clearly far too erotic an experience (laughs) for me right now. So he rolls up a tube of paper and listens through that tube. And uh, that amplifies and isolates the sound he's trying to hear, her heartbeat. And in doing so, he accidentally invents the stethoscope. Mm. And this is one of the few instances in history in which uh, progress is made by someone being too horny to do their job properly, (laughs) which is great. But uh, rolling up paper like that, we had paper in 300 BCE. That's over uh, 2,000 years where we could have invented this thing and didn't. And all we needed to do was to roll up a tube of paper and (laughs) press it to someone's heart, to their chest, to hear it. So it's... You look at humans, and it took us 2,000 years to roll up a tube of paper. And that's embarrassing in one way, but I also uh, find it inspiring because, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very easy invention that could have been invented for a huge expanse of time. And it means there's probably, there's tons of them in the book, and it suggests to me there's probably uh, inventions that we're missing right now in 2018, even though we have all the stuff we need. So I feel like that's, that's good. <laughs> like, that makes me feel good about our future, that there's still stuff we can invent. <laughs> I like that the book isn't just, you know, science stuff. Like there's philosophy. Obviously, you know, science stuff is a very, <laughs> very like broad term. A lot of things are science. But there's sure. like philosophy. There's music. There's all this other – there's visual art. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about the ideas of, of including like just a very brief overview of some of the humanities in there. Yeah, it's something that um, – I believe is important. I think you don't get civilization without having the humanities with art and music and stuff, storytelling, stories. And it it amazed me that there's even inventions within art and music that took us time to figure out. Uh, perspective is a great one where, uh, you know, in like 1995 when Photoshop comes out, you see lens flares on everything. <laughs> and you can really date art from that period because it's got lens flares on it. And if you look at art from the Renaissance, like they were just figuring out perspective. And so all this famous European canon art is just like baby's first perspective with like cubes or hallways with rectangles hanging on the walls. And as soon as you see it, you can't unsee it. But these are people who have just figured out perspective and are really excited to use this new tool. <laughs> and I think that's cute, but also hilarious. And it's it's something that I, re- I was excited to share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing that um, I, I guess I, I got to kind of ask is this is not a time travel story. It has a time travel frame, but it's not, you know, a traditional time travel story. But like what are what are some time travel stories you love? Like what were some that you either had seen so many times that you you just had them through osmosis or like that maybe you even looked at as you were like building up to writing this? Yeah, I mean the – prime example there is Back to the Future, which I saw when I was six and I spent the next 10 years of my life thinking about it. I don't think I'd ever heard of time travel before I saw that movie. And it was, it's a really good time travel movie. (laughs) It's like just throwing me in the deep end of the pool. And I wanted to answer that question of what could I do if I was stuck in the past? Because I feel like that's, that's what that movie asked is if you went back in time, what would you change? And once you get out of the, the recent hit past where you're like, oh, I tell myself not to do this or give myself lottery numbers or things like that. Once you get into the further, the more distant past, you, I think any honest interrogation of that question results in, you know, I, I don't know enough. <laughs> I wouldn't know enough. I'd, I'd be there in the 1600s saying, guys, the future's great. We have computers and, and, and soap. And they'd say, great, how do you invent that? And I'd say, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be amazing when you get to it. And I was like sincerely worried. I have an honest fear of being a sucky time traveler. And so uh, writing this book was sort of hoping to answer that. And that this all comes back to Back to the Future, for sure. 
Well, if you went, if you went back, like, what would be the thing you most missed? Like, what would be the thing you were instantly like, oh God, what am I going to do without that? Oh gosh. Um, probably computers, computer games specifically. I don't play a lot of them these days, but I like having the option to play them. <laughs> like knowing that I had this fantasy of retiring and catching up on all the games from like 2012 onward. <laughs> and I'd hate to lose that fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I would do without being able to um, play the stupid Angry Birds bubble shooter I play on my phone when I'm like <laughs> commuting somewhere. It's all we've got. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it's just, I don't know why this made me think of it, but um, when I was doing research for the book, part of surviving in the past is just surviving, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was reading all these uh, survivalist guides of like how to survive after the apocalypse. And there's uh, tons of books based on this fantasy of society goes to hell and you're one of the few who survive because you have the most guns mm-hmm. and you're going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that, that's talking about these books is a lot of them are crazy. Like they have incredibly wrong information in them. And they're not like self-published books. These are through legitimate publishers. There's one I read that um, it was saying when society collapses, uh, you'll need to find food and you can get canned food out of cities. And mm-hmm. don't worry, food doesn't go bad. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's a lie from the government. Uh, food, like when food goes bad, that's other animals eating it because it's still useful. It's still healthy. And the animals don't die. You won't die. It tastes gross, but that just keeps other people away from it. Eat rotten food. You'll never get sick. It's fine. And I was like, this doesn't seem right to me. And then it said, update to the second edition. And he's like, okay, uh, I got some botulism. I got a touch of the botulism <laughs> from eating some bad fish. But... Other foods still don't go bad. And I was like, well, who is publishing this? Like, this is insane. I, yeah, I was, I, you should have seen the face I was making. Uh, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> it's deeply skeptical and frightened and, uh, dis- disturbed. Uh, that is an interesting thing is that like one of the, the things I've always sort of held to be true about post-apocalyptic writing is a lot of it is like kind of a touchdown end zone dance, if you will. Like, like people are like, yes, I was correct that, you know, climate change or the rapture or nuclear war or whatever was going to destroy the world and like I was had the foresight to be ready or whatever and obviously some of it is not that way but like uh, one of the things that um, is it more interesting about time travels a lot of it is, is sort of interested in that irony of like even if you know more than everybody else you still are sort of like doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past and <laughs> I'm wondering if you kind of thought about that as, as you were writing this incredibly optimistic guide to like how we could you know uplift human civilization in a couple of generations instead of thousands and thousands of yeah. years. Yeah, it's, I, I, I agree with you. I feel like a lot of the apocalyptic um, survival guides, the premise is you're going to be one of the few that survives, but I feel like the reality is you're going to survive a couple weeks longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything yeah. that wipes out most of the people, you're not going to be special enough to survive. It'll probably wipe you out too. You'll just have a slightly more comfortable week until the plague gets you or whatever. <laughs> but when you do that backwards, you do the time travel version of it, it becomes a way more optimistic thing because... There's no, there's no apocalypse at the end. You're the one who can, who can make things better. And it, it honestly surprised me how optimistic a book about being alone, stranded in the past with no way to get back to the people you know and love could be. Like, I thought it would be this depressing book and end up being this much more uh, fun, you can fix it sort of thing. That was a great surprise. I'm a, I'm a more optimistic person generally. I'm happy to have written an optimistic book and not a real downer of a time travel guide. <laughs> What was the what was the thing you researched that took the most time for you to research that you like knew the least about and what what was the stuff that you were sort of like okay I can brush up on this but I'm I'm already pretty knowledgeable in it. 
Yeah, I'll do the knowledge one first because uh, I do. I have a degree in uh, computational linguistics, so I, the linguistics part was easy. Um, easier. The the funny part about that story is uh, just when this book was going to publish, my uh, publisher, my my editor was like, hey, "We need a bio for you." And I sent over my regular bio, which is usually, it's very comics focused. It's like Ryan North, he does Squirrel Girl, Dinosaur Comics, Venture Time, mm -hmm. here's all the stuff. And she was like, this is great. Uh, do you have something that gives you a bit more credentials? <laughs> do you have anything that makes you look smarter? I was like, oh, right. I'm sorry. I forgot I have a master's degree in competent science. I have a master's of science. And so I sent that over and I was like, that's a very suspicious email to send. <laughs> to say I forgot I did this master's. So I dug up my degree from the filing cabinet and took a picture of it and sent that along 20 minutes later. And then I realized that's even more suspicious because that's like, where were you last night? I was at home. Here's a picture of me at home. Why are you asking these questions? <laughs> All this to say, I knew the linguistics part of it. The hardest part for, for me, the research that you know kept going deeper and deeper and deeper is the chapter on... Um, knowing what time it is with clocks by the mm. stars. Mm -hmm. mm. Using timekeeping, year keeping by the stars. That is so complicated because the Earth's going around the sun. The Earth is spinning in three different ways. It's wobbling. And since you're at any point in history, we can't use the stars. We have to use the only star that we know is going to be there, which is our sun. And I kept thinking, okay, one more day of figuring this out and I'll be done. And it took like a week of, of research and, and figuring out how to actually calculate this and then explain it in a way that makes sense. It's a surprisingly hard question. <laughs> and there's a footnote, there's a joke somewhere saying, you know, I hope you brought a, a wristwatch with you because staring at your wristwatch is de rigueur and the time travel aesthetic and also makes this whole section a lot easier. <laughs> what were some of the things to write about um, that, that, you know, because the book is sort of written for the neophyte, like if you want, if you absolutely want to invent, invent a, a a kiln tomorrow, you know, like this is this is like telling you how to do it in a very sort of basic, easy language. What was some of the stuff that was hardest to boil down for a super general audience? Hmm. The computer science, I think, might have been. It would have been difficult if I didn't hadn't studied it because it's very finicky and it's very easy to go wrong. I remember. One of the sections I added was a section on birth control because I feel like controlling and reproduction is an important part of civilization. <laughs> and that was hard to to get into a sort of a neophyte sort of way, but also keep it accurate and keep it, you know, super, super matter of fact. You know, we're, we're all just talking about this. We don't need to get weird about it. People get weird around sex, I feel. And that was sort of a challenge that for one chapter, for a couple of pages, I'm writing a book about an essay really about birth control and how you can create it in the past. But the, the fun part to come from that was uh, there's a plant <laughs> that the Romans had that um, basically worked as super effective birth control. You eat it and you won't get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And the Romans never figured out how to cultivate it off this one coast where they found it. And so they just ate it to extinction. So for us, it sucks. <laughs> but for the time traveler, it's great. Because <laughs> if you can get to this one part of the planet, there's perfect birth control growing on the shores. <laughs> you just have to eat it. Nice work, Roman Empire. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Romans. <laughs> Did it again. I do want to ask you about about some of your other work um, because I I double checked this today just to make sure, but you are still doing dinosaur comics, which is this yes. thing that you fifteen uh, years. Yeah, it's it's uh, six panels. It's the same panels every day. You do it three times a week, and you have different dialogue all the time. Um, and I just, I, I'm sort of amazed that you are, you have so much else going on that you're still able to do this. Tell me about like <laughs> why it's important to you that keep, to keep that going. 
Yeah. Um, usually when I describe Dinosaur Comics, I end up by saying it's better than it sounds because it sounds horrible. It's like the same six <laughs> it's pictures. It's terrific. It's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Different words for 15 years. Um, but I realized kind of by accident that the thing Dinosaur Comics has taught me just by writing it is how to write dialogue. Like mm-hmm. it, Dinosaur Comics is mostly dialogue because the pictures don't change. It's just two dinosaurs having a conversation or three dinosaurs or sometimes God and the devil show up. Mm-hmm. And I like doing it. It feels... I've been doing it for 15 years. It feels like a part of me in a way that most other things aren't. I haven't done anything else for 15 years in my life, I think, mm-hmm. besides go to school. And that changed every year. I had new classmates, at least. <laughs> Still with the same three characters. Um, but it, it helps that it is something that, you know, once I've written it, it's done. I don't have to draw it. I just have to lay it out. And so it's it's sort of a a thing I like doing. And it also, I feel like it's very unlikely. I feel like it's probably almost totally unlikely that anyone else will continue to remix, reuse the same pictures for this long period of time. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of feel like if I stop, like that's that's the end. No one ever, no one is ever going to go any further. That's the edge of the map right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But if I keep going, I push that map a little bit forwards to see what's, what's on the other side. And the answer is more dinosaur comics, but that sort of is what keeps me going. <laughs> That and, and I enjoy it. One of the things I think is is interesting about the comic is, uh, like we said, it's the same drawings every day, but the characters' mm-hmm. personalities have developed over time. Like there's character development, if you will, of these like <laughs> of these talking dinosaurs, these talking dinosaur clip arts. Tell me a little bit about like f- what you've discovered about those characters over the 15 years of working with those same drawings. Yeah. Um, one of the things I learned early on is sort of um, something about myself where every day I would write a comic and I'd say, man, you know, the comic I wrote six months ago, that was great. That was my peak six months ago. And now they're garbage. I'm not as good as I used to be. Except I realized like that, that window slides. It's always six months ago. <laughs> you think that was great. And then I'd say later on that, Going back maybe five years, start thinking, oh, no, it was horrible five years ago. Why did anyone read it? And so the there's two conclusions. One is um, I'm just getting progressively worse. I need to accept that. Or the other is uh, I'm getting maybe a bit better and my tastes are changing. I'm becoming better at, at, at knowing these characters and telling these stories. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's the truth that I hold to, <laughs> the more flattering version of it. But it's it's been fun. Um the neat thing about T-Rex and Utoraptor is that their personalities are kind of, they initially were just defined by the way the pictures look. Like T-Rex looks excitable, so he's going to be an excitable dinosaur. But these are now two characters who've known each other for 15 years. And you have uh, an easiness and a, a different sort of relationship with friends you've known for that period of time than friends you've just met. And it's been fun to sort of see that develop. I remember looking at the early comics and they call each other the Utoraptor and the T-Rex. And it feels so weird. It's like... I don't know what I was doing, but going along over time, you never, I didn't notice that dropping. It just happened so naturally. Like when you start using a nickname for a friend, usually, hopefully it's natural. You don't just say from now on, you know, you're the whiz and you can call me Kegmeister. It normally happens more naturally than that. I feel a little bad for the the people in the cabin who are doomed to be crushed <laughs> day after day after day. Yeah. This but endless Sisyphean cycle. By now they know what they've signed up for. Like that's, <laughs> that's the Airbnb that says you might get stepped on. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, they're renting out on Airbnb. There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I do like, I think a lot about, um, I guess, sort of the humor 
of the early internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Me too. and dinosaur dinosaur comics is like sort of born out of that world. But like, there's a lot of other web comics, a lot of other like early internet. Uh, jokesters, I can't think of a better word. Comedians, that's the word that we have for people who make jokes. Um, <laughs> Chuckle prompt builders, I think. Is <laughs> but I, I, And I'm thinking a lot about like how I feel like internet humor has gotten meaner over time. Mm. Like obviously there was mean stuff on the internet back when you launched the comic, but like there definitely there was sort of this sense of absurdity and and just outright weirdness and sort of almost wonder at like, the idea that we could mash up all of human knowledge that we had available to us on yep. this, this new platform. And now we've gotten sort of cynical and brazen about it. And I'm wondering like what you've sort of observed about that transition because your sense of humor is still very present in like this book and in your other comics writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think – I don't think you're wrong. I feel like um, – I mean when you look back at early internet humor, you're looking back at stuff that's 15, 20 years old. And like when I started Dinosaur Comics, it predates – Twitter, it predates YouTube, it predates Facebook, it predates social media as a thing. I posted about it on news groups mm. to be like, hey, there's a new comic. Like it's, it's a different era entirely. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of that was, early on, it was the, the tech people, a lot of guys who were who were doing this stuff. And you end up with a certain sort of humor that becomes very popular. And now there's, it's, there's a lot more people online, a lot of different types of people. There's a lot more variety in humor. And I feel like an observation that maybe... I hope I'm seeing is I feel like sincerity is coming back in a big way. I like it. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that um, like we can we can do jokes that are funny and we just all admit we're we're having a fun time. We're enjoying jokes. You don't need to like make fun of someone to tell a joke. Or the idea that if we're going to 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 pick a target, let's pick a target wisely. Let's punch up instead of punching down. I feel like there's more awareness of that in people who are doing comedy and doing jokes and. I think that's great. Like the more um, the more we're conscious of what we're doing, what we're putting out there, the better it is. And I look back at the early dinosaur comics, and there's stuff where I wouldn't publish that today. I mean, there's nothing that I'm, I'm going. There's nothing I've had to take down. I've only ever actually I took down one comic. It was a very early comic, and uh, it was <laughs> the punchline involved uh, Bill Cosby being wholesome. And I was like, this is no longer relevant. I will drop this comic. <laughs> well, that's not your fault. That's uh, somebody. That's else's not my fault. fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's. Um, but looking back, there's, there's stuff where I can't imagine writing it now. Like I would say, I'm, this is not the way I would tell this joke. This is not the way I would do this joke. But I think it still has – it's still interesting to see it and to to see that development over time. Yeah. Maybe th- just for me. Maybe I'm just like selfishly looking at my old work and be like, oh, yes, interesting. I am a fascinating jewel. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's kind of this element of – the early internet was for highly educated white guys. Like it wasn't just for mm-hmm. highly educated, but if you ran in like internet circles, that's a lot of people you came in contact with. And like my wife was, a part and it was of very it. easy to get on. Yeah, if and my wife was white guy, yeah. my wife was like a part of that world. And like sometimes just you know do the do the thing where you had a male screen name or something, so you didn't stand out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like now the internet is everybody. And there was sort of this period of like this resentment, I think, from people who were used to that old internet who like got sort of upset about like the diversity and the divergence of people over there. And now I feel like we are coming back to an era where we're like, well, we're all kind of in this together and there are far larger problems in the world. I hope at least as a, as yeah. somebody who would like that to happen. <laughs> I hope so too. I remember, um, it must've been a couple of years ago now, but having this realization that a thing that I always held to be true was not actually true. And growing up when I did, I held to be true that the more people on the internet, the better it would be. Connecting people was an innate good. Mm -hmm. And that 
just by having people online, you would by talking to more people, you'd have, you'd have progress. And I think Facebook <laughs> has shown us over the past, let's say, couple years that um, nece- not just having people talk to each other doesn't necessarily result in good things, especially when you don't know who those people are. Mm-hmm. And the idea of like anonymity being an intrinsically good thing doesn't work on platforms like Twitter where, you know, the only way I have to judge who you are is who you're following. And so people use block lists to be like, I, if you're following this obnoxious guy, I will mute you because I don't need to hear it. <laughs> like, yeah. I, this is the only way I have. And it turns out having the whole world be able to contact you at any time does have some downsides. <laughs> there are downsides to that. And the idea that people will, you know, rally these, these um, you know, drive-by-night armies to hurl abuse on the target of the day, that's not good. And that wasn't what I think any of us were thinking about when we thought of the internet. We thought, oh, I'll send an email to China and I'll make a pen pal in China and that'll be great. And not some guy in Florida will try to ruin my life for the next six months <laughs> and yeah. I won't be able to stop him. Yeah. Well, uh, you're, you're roughly the same age as me. Like you were born like a month before me. Um, and uh, really, when's your birthday? Uh, November 30th, uh, 1980. October 20th. There you go. Yeah. There you go. go. (laughs) October babies. Good for us. Or November babies too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so we're kind of in that, like, uh, that, that, that generation of people who didn't grow up with the internet, but then got it when we were teens. So like we know it sort of backwards and forwards and, I've gone through a period of sort of great despair about what it's become. And now I'm coming around on like, I think we're figuring out how to work with it as somebody who both like is in that generation, but also somebody who has studied computer science and some of that Mm -hmm. stuff. What, what sort of gives you hope about where the internet is heading, where it might be heading? Yeah. Um, I wish I had a faster answer to this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What gives you hope? Let me think about that. I do think if you look at the, the early structure of the internet, it has that sort of techno-utopian optimism baked in where, mm-hmm. you know, protocols didn't have any authentication. You just connect and we'll give you what you want. People had uh, finger files where if you just contact over this port, it tells you where they are and what they're up to. And just like, we're all friends on this little network. And we're realizing that there is extreme value in being able to share information with with just your friends. Like mm-hmm. making these networks small again, having people you trust online and having the ability to share trust information and I see protocols and networks evolving more towards that, which has a downside, sure. Like, we don't want to all be isolated in our little insular groups, but also we don't want to be always vulnerable to attacks from the rest of the world. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that is plus side. So I feel like there's there's a middle ground where we're sort of stumbling towards it through trial and error, a very expensive trial and error, both in terms of, of human cost and money, but... I don't think the internet is a bad idea and we should abandon it. I think there's value to humanity as a whole, mm-hmm. but I don't think we're there yet. I think we're, we're working towards it. And I know that's kind of like a, a wishy-washy answer. I wish I had something like very concrete to point to and say, this is going to save us. But I think we're getting, I mean, I'm, I'm still optimistic about humanity <laughs> as a whole. I think with time machines, you should go back and still like still invent the internet. It's, it's still a, a net good for humanity. But I'm not sure what the what the perfect version of that is yet. Well, I'm moving under the sea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to learn more about this undersea utopia. <laughs> I do. I do kind of want to like. I was thinking when you were talking about dinosaur comics. Um, I was thinking about the idea of, of memes of like 
kind of sometimes taking the same picture and putting new words over it and changing the context of that picture. And I was like, but that's also sort of just like what comics are in general is wedding words and images in a way that like changes their meaning. And like we've seen, you know, memes can be everything from great to horrible. And like, I'm wondering like how you think about the idea of wedding, how you're thinking about the idea of wedding images to words has changed both over the course of writing yeah. your web comic, but then also you write, you know, Squirrel Girl, Squirrel Girl, Adventure Time, some of these other like comics. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I know I've heard Dinosaur Compass described as like the first meme because before that, when I was starting out, memes were mostly things like, you know, Mr. T ate my balls and things like that, where it's just you had a phrase and you repeated it and it was a gross phrase and we all laughed yeah. at how gross it was. <laughs> and most, when you say memes now, you think of a static image with some words on top in impact font. And that's using the same pictures and remixing the words to make it funny, which is really close to what Dinosaur Comics is. So I can see that connection. But something I'm really excited about is... Over the past uh, three or four years, the the growth of emoji, where people are now putting pictures in their words, mixing them together, like on the in their sentences, routinely, and it's giving this um, visual literacy of knowing that that these icons can represent different things and communicating, sending like turning songs into just emoji, and it's it's really blurring the line between language and pictures in a way that I, I love and I think is great. Mm-hmm. And the more people I think who are innately like intimately comfortable with using emoji and tra- communicating with pictures, the less imposing comics can be, right? Because sometimes comics can be scary. It used to be when I when we were growing up, if you want to read a comic, you have to go into a comic book store. And I feel like walking to a comic book store is like walking into um, what what are the name of the places where they repair your cars? A mechanics mechanics yeah. what's it called? <laughs> a mechanics a, a, store a mechanic or a body shop or something like that. Yeah, a body <laughs> shop. That's the phrase. <laughs> mechanics. I was um, <laughs> walking to a body sh- a body shop. Yeah, body shop. B a w body shop. Okay, walking to a body shop. I feel like instantly like an idiot because I walk in. And I'm like, hey, my car's not working. Um, they say, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know. It's not working. Like, I don't know enough to know what I don't know. I feel like an idiot. I know you're, I'm feeling like I'm going to get ripped off. I'm just super uncomfortable. I don't want to be here. I just want a car that works. Like, I don't want to be in and out. I hate it here. And comic book stores used to be like that, right? Like, if you didn't know comics, you'd feel like I, I, they're going to they're gonna quiz me on Spider-Man, and I won't know <laughs> what year he came out in. And um, there's a lot of stores that are not like that now, and it's changing. There's really some terrific stores. But also, like, you can read comics online. You can you can find them without having to, to make this leap into a specialty shop, mm-hmm. right? The same as walking into an adult store. Like, you know, when no one just wanders into an adult store. You have to, like, make the leap and walk through that threshold <laughs> to yeah. do it. Yeah. And I feel like the internet has helped a lot with that. I used to get emails from people saying, hey, I, you know, I love Dinosaur Comics. And I don't love comics, but I love yours. And I write back and say, surprise, you like comics. Like, mm. this is all comics. It used to be that, um, you know, if you didn't read comic books, you thought that, You'd, you'd, you'd know Archie from, like, the supermarket, and you'd know superheroes from movies and general cultural osmosis, and you'd know newspaper strips, like, you know, gag a punchline stuff. And if you didn't like those three specific genres, <laughs> then you'd, you'd be like, oh, I guess I don't like comics. It's like um, it's like a, growing up in a, in a small town where there's only one movie theater, and the movie theater only shows romantic comedies. And if you don't like romantic comedies, you'd be forgiven after 20 years saying, I guess I just don't like movies because I've never seen a movie I like. <laughs> And comics have escaped from that now. Like, there's comics for everything, and comic book movies have helped a lot, showing that. Well, they've helped some, showing that there's different genres of stuff. It's not all superheroes. And um, the more that that gets out, the more that people see it's a, a, a medium and not a genre. You can do anything in comics. Uh, the, the happier I am. 
That's yeah. a, a long answer to a, a pretty simple question. <laughs> I, one of the things that strikes me about um, almost all of your writing is that the humor comes from piling on more words instead of less. A lot of times, a lot of times, like <laughs> the you idea, sound like an editor. Uh, the idea is, well, this is, I'm, this is also true of me, and we could get my editor on the podcast to like talk about yeah. this this problem. Uh, but feature, uh, feature, yes, I I think it works for me. I think it works for you. But tell me a little bit about like how you know. When to pull back, how you know, like, like when loquaciousness is going to be funnier than, you know, not having 500 words there. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is the, um, the secret I have to writing, or at least the way I figured out it works for me, is I cannot write in public because the only way I can tell if something is funny is if it makes me laugh. And that means I'm there at my keyboard going like, oh, good work, <laughs> me. Like, it's, it's so embarrassing to be like on a coffee shop laughing at his own jokes as he types. I can't do it. And so I rely on my own sort of internal sense of humor. Like the act of writing comedy is the act of trying to make yourself laugh and finding some, some course through the conversation or through some subject matter that, that gets you to laugh. And so I am 100% relying on my own sense of humor to, to get me through this. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of useless advice because if you don't share the same sense of humor, you're not going to find it funny. And we both find uh, like a really well done turn of phrase with some words in there. We both like it and we think it's great. And hopefully other people like it too. But like, I would love to be able to write Mitch Hedberg style, like tight 10 word, hilarious jokes you think about for the next 10 years. (laughs) It's just great, (laughs) but I can't do it. I can only work with what I've got. Um, And the funny story about this is one time I did an interview with um, my old campus paper and I said something similar, how I write for anyone who shares my sense of humor. And they printed it as, I write for anyone who has a sense of humor, which is way more <laughs> egotistical. <laughs> and in, in the same interview, they asked, uh, you know, where do you get your ideas? And I said, oh, I have this, um, for Dinosaur Comics, I have this giant text file full of, uh, you know, snippets of dialogue, stuff I'd like to explore that I can look at if I get stuck. So I never face a blank sheet of paper. And the interviewer said, oh, interesting, interesting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And then uh, it reached print and it said that I have a giant textile that I look at, like a rug. <laughs> and it's such a better answer of where I get my ideas from. You yeah, sh- so you I have should, a textile. You should get, just for you, a Dinosaur Comics tapestry just to like have it hung up on a wall somewhere. Yeah. It'd be great. Well, I think about that. I think about how doing Dinosaur Comics for 15 years, it's a webcomic. That feels kind of normal. It feels reasonable. Like this is something that a human can do and we're not going to question it. But if I had not put them online and just taped them to my walls instead, <laughs> I would be completely insane. Like you'd, you'd find my dead body with over 4,000 comics all over the walls with the same pictures. That You'd think serious mental illness. <laughs> but by publishing it, it's just a quirky thing I do. <laughs> well, we're, um, we're kind of coming into the end of the show. So I want to circle back to the book and ask you, sure. what, is like, what is like your innate quality that you think would make you useful in a time travel situation and what is the thing that would make you the least helpful and I guess I will say I have like for me I don't tend to get really stressed out so like that would be helpful in time travel but also I have Super a tendency I have a tendency to just give up right away <laughs> so that would not be helpful <laughs> do these go hand in hand the not stressing out and giving up immediately <laughs> yeah like might, quite possibly yeah <laughs> a bit of a vicious circle there yeah <laughs> um I think my most useful thing as a time traveler besides having this book, which I think would be actually really useful. Yes, it would. Um, is, uh, assuming I can get communication established, I can talk to people. Humor goes a long way in, in putting people at ease and in disarming people. And if you're trying to, if you're trying to build a civilization from scratch, 
you can't be fully serious 100% of the time. So you want to have some time to relax, have some jokes. So I guess I could do a tight five from the rest of people in my <laughs> civilization <laughs> about farming to get them motivated for tomorrow's work. Um, but my, my least useful trait is probably the fact that I am so accustomed to all the, uh, the stuff we have in the modern era. Like the other people aren't going to miss checking Twitter every five minutes, but I would, I'd have that phantom phone in my hand for a while. <laughs> so I feel like, I guess I'm soft. I'm, I'm future soft. I'm technologically soft. And that is a weakness for, for, you know, building a new world. I at would, any point in history. <laughs> I would not want to be a hunter-gatherer, I have to say. It doesn't seem fun. Um, well, it would be fun. In time periods and places where like food is plentiful, mm-hmm. hunting-gathering is super where it's at because mm-hmm. you're just wandering around picking, like Garden of Eden, picking food off the trees. Like that is so relaxing. And it's it's hard to for farming to compete with that in times of plenty because for farming, you have to like, you have to labor all day <laughs> to make food show up and just picking it where you find it. So... Farming works because um, it gives you a reliable food source outside of this this feast-famine cycle. But in the right place, in the right time, hunting-gathering is that fantasy of just lying in the sun, eating grapes. <laughs> you know, a rabbit comes by, I take a bite out of its hind leg, it scampers off, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you some of those. And we're going to start with uh, whether, you know, you you saw a movie or watched a TV show, read a book, whatever. The last kind of pop culture thing you did and what you thought of it. The last pop culture thing I did and what I thought of it. Oh, my gosh. What was the last pop culture thing I did? I see movies all the time, but they all sort of fade into the ether. Oh, I saw um, I saw Crazy Rich Asians at the theater. Yeah, and I loved it. You loved it? What did you like about it? I loved it. I don't see a lot of romantic comedies, but I liked... Um, so this is sort of divvying my toe in there. I really enjoyed it. I liked how the male lead was very uh, heterosexual, female gazy. Like mm-hmm. you don't normally see sexualized Asian men in cinema, and I thought that was great. And I liked how um, it basically made me want to, I guess, be super rich in Singapore. It seems like a nice way to live your life. <laughs> and I almost felt like an amusement park ride of just seeing seeing this this world and spending some time in it. And it was just a really pleasant time at the theater. And outside of what I normally see, which was great. Who is the writer that you've learned the most from, living or dead, that you have never met? Oh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, for sure. Um, never met him. He's, he's hilarious. Yes. I've heard other, uh, writers sort of talk about Kurt Vonnegut disease, Mm -hmm. where if you read some Kurt Vonnegut, you can't write for the next couple of days because you'll just write like Kurt Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's such a distinctive, great style that you want to just have it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's, he's one of the first who, I remember reading Slaughterhouse-Five and he was the author who taught me that you can talk about like serious things, like very serious things, some of the most serious subject matter in the world and still have fun with it, still have jokes that are like they're respectful, but they can be devastating Mm -hmm. and they can really elevate the work. Cause I feel like when you're talking about serious stuff, if you're serious all the time, it's just dour and you, you lose an audience, you, you tune out you feel like, I don't want to, I don't want to be here for this. But if you have jokes in it, um, if you, if you make it engaging, then it can be even almost more serious than it would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Like you have the contrast, you have the, the emotional, journey there mm. so he was he was great mm. um and also good at writing so 
and he and he gets he gets stuck in your head. Like I my my uh, I have a book coming out in a couple of weeks, and it it I, I had a section in it where I had I had like a Kurt Vonnegut quote in there that like I didn't realize was one because it was just stuck in my head, and I was like, that's a great yeah. quote. My editor was like, if we're going to reference Kurt Vonnegut, we should we should work that we should <laughs> like make it more of a theme. And I was like, oh, it was a thing I was going for. I I didn't quite realize and not didn't mention. I just ripped yeah. It <laughs> I have that I have that all the time with uh, with like early Simpsons references where yeah. you forget there are Simpsons reference. You just <laughs> say it and then you watch an episode and you're like, oh, that's where that comes from. <laughs> I thought me and my friends were saying possibly, but no, that's from that episode. <laughs> and there's a huge amount of that for people of a certain age, yeah. I guess, ours, ours technically millennials in the 80s. Yes, yes. And finally, what is, whether it was for the company or the quality of the food, what is the best meal you've ever had? Oh my gosh, I have a perfect answer for this because I think about it all the time. <laughs> so there's there's a restaurant in Toronto closed this year mm. uh, called The Black Hoof. And they made bone marrow there that I would go with my wife and I would make these faces. And she thought the first time that I hated it. But I was crunching up my face so much because I had never tasted it. <laughs> like it was, I was like discovering a new flavor. And I only had that meal when The Black Hoof was open for a decade. I only had it at most once a year because it felt like I had a worry that it would not be as good as I remembered it and it always was and it also felt like anything this good had to have a cost mm. like it was taking years off my life and I didn't I wouldn't realize this until I was 70 <laughs> I would just die but uh, bone marrow from a now closed restaurant in 2017 if you're a time traveler bringing it back if you're a time traveler that is the best meal I've had of my life and it is a repeatable best meal of my life yeah I had bone marrow other places, and it's always been disappointing, but there it was just great. Now that it's closed, it'll just be forever this this unreachable, perfect meal that I had. You could find, you could look up the chef and just go, like, stand outside their house and be like, give me the bone marrow. Yeah, she's got other restaurants now, but they don't have the same bone marrow. <laughs> it's not the same. It's gone. I, I, it's just a tragedy. Well, the book is How to Invent Everything. It's in bookstores now. Ryan North, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back with former NASA astronauts Mae Jemison and Leland Melvin. Leland's the guy in that photo with all the dogs in it, and that is terrific. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smart water, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. The news today seems really grim. And it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect, a show about possible solutions Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Simply tell the Border Patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. Listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. My guests today are May Jemison. Hi, May. Hello. And Leland Melvin. Hi, Leland. Hi, Tom. And you are both former astronauts, which is 
a cool job, I have to say. It's, it's a cool thing. I've never been, you know, beyond, uh, you know, 35,000 feet. <laughs> so tell me about the emotional experience of like, you know, leaving, going up into the, the outer reaches. Like, what does it feel like to be uh, headed into space? So I think everybody has their own separate point of view. I mean, I was just actually thrilled. And I thought back to the little girl I was when I was growing up on the south side of Chicago and imagining if she knew that I was up in space, right? And that was just an incredibly a warm feeling and one not so much of accomplishment, but just one of this is really cool. I wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Um, there, there are lots of different ways you can talk about the emotional feelings and some are personal. Some might be an overview. I don't know, Leland. Yeah. I mean, you know, three, two, one liftoff, you're shaking, you're rattling, you're fist bumping, your crewmates, you're smiling. I'm screaming and shrieking as the solid rocket boosters are, spinning up and jettisoning. And then six and a half minutes later, you're now in space and you're floating and you're looking back at the planet. And the first thing that I saw coming down was the external tank and I was taking pictures of it. And then when the external tank cleared, I saw the Caribbean ocean and how many different colors I didn't know to do, to define, to describe what I was seeing. And it was just stunningly beautiful. And the people up there with me were working together as one family, one team. And I could see where the plume of the shuttle connected to the ground, and that's where my family watched me go up to space. And so I, I was I was transformed. I know we call this thing the orbital perspective, the overview effect, cognitive shift. I did feel a cognitive shift when I looked back at the planet while we were breaking bread with Russians, Germans, the first female commander, and African-American and Asian-American. And so it was like a Benetton commercial while I'm – having this meal, listening to Sade's Smooth Operator. <laughs> I, I, you know, this whole idea that people have, again, they talk about the overview effect. Again, I think it's what who you were when you took up. So I always assumed, you know, knew that the earth had no boundaries, had none of mm-hmm, these, mm-hmm. these markers, that they were all produced by humans for whatever reason. My connection actually wasn't with the earth. My connection was with the rest of the universe because I tried to make myself afraid. Right. I tried to to make myself afraid while I was on the shuttle because I was feeling a little too calm, a little too jazzy, a little too good. So I imagine that on the other side of this hatch was this environment that was not uh, would not support my life form. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was okay. And I imagine myself 10,000 light years away at another star system. Would I be lonely? Would I be afraid? And I wasn't. While you were in space, you were thinking While I was in space because I felt connected with the entire universe. For me, it was a connecting experience. Some people say that it makes them feel small or insignificant. It made me feel more connected because it said, you know, I'm this... Yeah, I am the stuff of stars. Like, I have as much right to be in this universe Mm -hmm. as any speck of stardust. So it really depends on, you know, I think what you take with you and your perspective. Because for me, it was really one that expanded and and opened me rather than tied me more to this planet. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you bring up what you call the orbital perspective. Because I was was watching a video of some of the men who walked on the moon talking about how it really shifted their relationship to the earth, being able to cover up the earth with their thumb as they were going away from it. And like some, you know, said just what you said, which is like the boundaries that we've made are all 
human-made, and some said we really need to worry about the environment, all of these things that like, like what shifts in your relationship to the earth when you've seen it from outside, you know? So looking back at the earth, so it's it's stunning, right? Mm-hmm. There's Leland talked about the blue. So you think it almost iridesces from within. It's like the light off of the planet. And then you sort of think about this wonderful planet. For me, it was um, people are very mistaken when they say save the earth. It's not about saving the earth. It's about saving us. And so that is one that was codified for me because the earth will be here. right? We might not be. Because if we treat it in such a way that this thin layer that is our atmosphere, really tiny, thin layer, it won't sustain us. And so for me, it's really been about the connection all the way around. Um, in, a, in, in my perspective, I always knew that there weren't borders. I was always knew that we were spoiling the water. I, those were part and parcel of who I was and my knowledge base and how I thought about the world before going up. But it codified that, you know, we don't have to be here. Yeah, yeah. And, and May, you know, we were at a conference. We we, she was giving a talk at UVA, and I said, you know, we have this fragile planet. And that's when you corrected me. You said it's not fragile. And I and that's when I really thought about what is really fragile in this system. It's like the earth is going to keep going. It's going to figure this climate stuff out. It's going to do what it has to do to regenerate itself. But we're going to be burped out. And and that's and I'm so glad that she said that before. But and also the other thing that it did for me, it was it connected me with more people like I hadn't traveled. I mean, I've gone to Russia and Germany, but I hadn't done a lot of traveling and to have people in space that we used to fight against working together and going around the planet over Afghanistan and Iraq and then coming back to my hometown of Virginia, thinking my parents are having a meal down there. And then five minutes later, we're over Paris and Leo Eihardt's French astronauts' parents are probably having something or drinking some wine or doing something. And Yuri's looking off to Moscow. So we were so all interconnected. And it made me, you know, think about my race, the human race, versus these differences that we've been manufacturing to make us into our separate little tribe so that we can get votes and whatever. But it's, it was beautiful to look at it that way. When you think about like the idea of, uh, of space exploration, because we've really kind of, I don't want to say we've gotten away from it. We're still doing it, but like we are, we're not putting as much emphasis on it as perhaps we once did. Why not? At least here in, here in the U S I feel like we're not Maybe we're not funding it as much. Or we have more I, money for NASA than we've ever had. $19.5 billion. Mm. It's the largest NASA budget that we've ever had. Mm. Unfortunately, it doesn't stretch as far. <laughs> right. So, but it's so still, it's, it could have been Okay, all right. Yeah. But, but so here's the thing. When I look at it, and I don't know where you're going with the question, Todd. I'm just jumping in. Anyway. I don't know either, actually. So, I'm so just here's, I think that people love space. Right. The issue is... People want space exploration to be big and expansive and do audacious things and bring us to places we haven't been before. Like the moonshot. So, so going to the moon, I or and it could be humans involved, or it could be others. Because remember how people were riveted with the Mars rover, right, and seeing what was happening, what we're going to see. It's really important for us to do those kinds of things and find ways to include other people. And part of what we are fighting against now these days, this is going to sound pretty silly, but the the visual reality of movies and programs and stuff that say we ought to be someplace else. You asked me what else I thought about when I was an astronaut in the space. 
I was irritated that I didn't get to go to Mars because I assumed that I would when I'd be a little girl, that I would be on Mars because we would have had that kind of a push. And so now what we have to do is push further. I lead this project called 100 Year Starship, and it's about making sure that we have the capabilities for humans' interstellar flight in 100 years. Capabilities, not a launch date. But why do we need those capabilities? Because everything that you need to survive an interstellar journey, mm. we need here on Earth. The sustainability, the you know AI, learning how to work and interact with one another, right? All those things we need. And so that's the reason why, in some ways, I'm very hopeful. But I also recognize that, you know, we're not the the main be-all on this planet. We're not... We're not the pinnacle of uh, the universe. <laughs> well, you know, you say 19.6 billion and like, but that's still a drop in the bucket of like stuff that we spend on other things. And that's nonpartisan. Well, that goes across both parties. But the know? Air Force has, you know, five times that. Yes. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so if we, we, so we could reprogram the money yeah. to be more, you know, peaceful than from a militaristic standpoint, but that's how it is right now. Yeah, exactly. I guess what I'm asking is like, what are the things we don't, the benefits we don't think of when we think about like having NASA as an active presence in our lives? Like what are the things we get from NASA that maybe we don't think about? Weather satellites. People see, I Mm -hmm. still live in Houston, Texas. More people didn't die from Hurricane Harvey because we knew it was coming and we could watch it. You can go on. I mean, that's one thing. And we forget that weather satellites are in space. I mean, that's so fundamental, Mm -hmm. right? But we forget that. And so you can go through all the remote sensing and things like that. You can go to miniaturization. You can go to issues around materials and Hip replacements, fire, I mean, smoke detectors, and just all these things that have come from the space program that we take for granted that we don't even realize it came from the space program. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, just like the miniaturization stuff, self-driving cars, automation, you know, we have vehicles can dock to the space station without human intervention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Soyuz, the, the, um, the, not the, um, what is it? We, we actually grab some of the transfer vehicles, but a lot of these things can dock, you know, independently without, without interaction from humans. And so that automation comes down to maybe self-driving cars or other... Self-driving cars. How do they know where they're going? Satellites. Right? And we we, 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 we sit there with our smartphones and ask Siri or Alexa or Bertha or whoever we ask them, (laughs) you know, uh, show me how to go here. (laughs) We're using, you know, GPS satellites. And I think that those are some of the issues. This comes to telling the story better, which is really why I think going back to this series Mars that Leela and I both are... Uh, participating in, the reason why it's so exciting because it tells a story about space very, very well with engaging characters and also with big thinkers and and folks who can actually tell the real ideas about what's going on with space exploration now, how it might be similar in terms of setting up a Mars community that's similar to doing things in very dangerous places, um, how industry might participate. I'm going to fangirl for a minute. Dr. Mae Jemison, when I tell people, when they saw the picture of us and that last thing, these little girls came up to me and said, oh, my God, you touched Dr. Mae Jemison? <laughs> because she's a, she's a shiro. She's an icon. She's someone that people see the first. And, and I think one of the things that Mars does, season two, well, both season one and two, we have an Asian-American commander, female commander, that's never been seen on TV before. And so more people can see the diversity of this crew on, on the Martian surface and, and a little kid can say, hey, I can be that person. I can be that engineer. I can be that. 
And I think that's one of the beautiful things that Nat Geo's done is shown that this diversity of thinking, of gender, of, you know, whatever, can bring the most diverse solutions to problems on Mars and on our planet. Mm. Well, we're talking about Mars, and it's sort of at the center of the show is the idea of, you know, actually going to Mars, obviously. And we hear all the time that people are planning missions there, countries, private industries, things like that. Do, do you believe that we will land on Mars in your lifetimes? I mean, humans, we've already been on Mars. We were on yeah. Mars when I was a little kid. Okay? <laughs> true, true, so very true. And no, but I think that's really important because I think that's one of the reasons why we can expect that this is reasonable mm-hmm. is because it's not something we know Mars address. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually on its closest approach to the Earth in 15 years right now. Mm. Right? We just today had an announcement about water under liquid water under the surface mm, wow. of the soft pole of Mars. We have all a couple of months ago, there was evidence that there might have been some organic molecule mm-hmm. kind of precursors for life, right? So there are all these things that we know. And that's the reason why, yes, it's possible. Yes, we can do it. In 10 years, less than 10 years, we went to the moon with humans and back. Because the political will was there, the resources were there. JFK, May of 61, went to Congress and said, I want to send him, he said, a man. I changed the language to human, so it can be for everyone, to the moon and back safely in the next decade. And we did it. And so I think if we had that same type of momentum going forward to say, this is something we're going to do as a as a civilization, because it's not going to just be America. It's not going to be, it's going to be a combination of entities, whether it's private, government, whatever, working together getting our stuff, collective stuff together to to do it. And I think it's possible. And we had much less knowledge about space oh, yeah. and technologies when that, that commitment was made. Can I tell you about a project I'm working on? Yes. I just have to. The, so one of the big issues is really about public commitment. There's always this whole idea is Mars a plan B for human species. It's not a plan B. Um, because if we can't figure out how to take care of this planet, you can bet that we're not going to figure out anything else. But the major issue that we have here, I think, is connectedness. And so there's a a project that we've been working on in in collaboration with 100-Year Starship. It's called Look Up. Mm. August 28th, 2018, around the world, we ask people to look up and record what they hope, think, dream, fear, dread, wish, plan when they look up at the sky and then record it. And then we'll try to create uh, images that everyone can see about this one day. Why? Because we need to know that we're connected. If we take the same 24 hours GMT, like, and look at this, then maybe one point in time we'll get that effect from looking from, from down, looking up, because I think that effect is just as powerful. And when you think about it, Every group of people around the world have looked at the stars. It's been part of our mythology. Mm. It's been part of, of our world. It, it helps us plant crops, right? It helped us navigate. It's part of us. Can we get that back for a little bit? Mm. Leland, I have to ask about the dog photo. <laughs> I, they sent it out with the press release for this show. And I, I'm, I'm... The cat photo, the dog photo. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about just the story behind that very, very quickly, because I, I love that photo so much. Thank you. So they told me when I got assigned to a mission, they told me that you can bring your family into the photo shoot with your orange pumpkin suit on, that you're going to fly in space on the shuttle. 
They didn't say two-legged or four-legged. <laughs> Even though dogs are not allowed on base, mm-hmm. I had to sneak him in to the through the back gate. We snuck up the back stairs of the photo lab. I had 100 milk bones sitting there waiting for Jake and Scout to eat them while I put on my suit. I came out. They saw me. They started running over. I looked at the photographer and said, hold the shutter down. And he just started <laughs> shooting. And that picture was born with Jake and Scout both jumping Aww. up and looking. And uh, and then when I went to change out of the suit, I ran out of dog bones. So they started barking. <laughs> and the security guards came. And we said, no, it's just a dog screensaver. It's just a dog's barking on the screensaver. And they went away. So I got out unscathed. <laughs> well, to kind of wrap up our conversation here, we talked about how, May, you're so inspiring to so many young women. Who inspired you when you were the age of those, you know, 12, 13-year-olds? Who were the people you really looked up to and hoped you could you could be like when you were when you grew up? Go ahead, May. So I think we all, you know, the, the so inspires, I think a, we have a foundation with our parents, right? The people we are around make a difference in terms of how you think you can move forward. I also, when I looked around and during when I was a little girl and growing up, I looked at all kinds of people, right? I remember thinking about Linus Pauling, who was this incredible, he was a biochemist and he won a Nobel Prize for biochemistry and my understanding that the amino acid um, sequence determined the 3D configuration of proteins. Mm. But he also won a Nobel Peace Prize for helping to get underground uh, nuclear testing underground or stop above ground testing. That was incredible. Judith Jamison, incredible dancers, right? Lola Falana, Jerome Robbins. There's that sphere in that sector. Julius Neri, who's the first president of Tanzania. There are all these people who are very involved. And then you have, because you can sort of look at and say, what can I do? Mm. And sometimes it's their strength of character. Sometimes it's what they actually did. Other times it's just because they're really cool, right? <laughs> and you want to be cool like that. <laughs> For me, it was um, my dad was one of my role models, and he was a school teacher. Both my mom and my mom and dad were school teachers, but um, my dad pointed out Arthur Ashe to me at a young age because Arthur Ashe trained in Lynchburg, Virginia, five blocks down the street from where I lived, and he talked about his character, his discipline his intelligence and all these things. And he said, you know, and and that was around the time I was five years old when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon. And I saw the the black and white television set. I saw them doing the kids asked me, do you want to be an astronaut? I said, no, I'd be Arthur Ashe. Yeah. So that's what, one of my inspirations. And I started playing tennis mm. after that. Yeah. So, mm. Well, Leland May, thank you so much for joining me. The show is Mars. It's on Nat Geo. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. I Think You're Interesting is being completely preserved on gold discs, which we're sending out to the stars so that alien life can hear my thoughts on everything. And I am Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of this show. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our editor is Griffin Tanner, the executive producer of audio at Fox Media is Nishat Kurwa. The sound designer is Miles Yule. The logo is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich, and our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our studio is the Rebel Talk Network in Los Angeles, and our recording engineer this week was Ernie Hurtado. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also email me, Todd at Vox.com. Email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com. You can tweet at me at TVOTI. 
to Vody. We're going to be back next week with a visit from one of my favorite writers, Diablo Cody. It's a really fun one. I think you're going to love it. And until then, if you find yourself stranded in the past, maybe try and like domesticate some other animals. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we had like domesticated bears? That seems like a cool thing to have. So, uh, you know, just think about it. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste.